Hi everyone, and welcome to the ADSR Inspirations Podcast. My name is James Mallion. I'm your host as I introduce you to inspirational and artful souls from all over the world. I'm deeply interested in music, film, the arts, achieving goals, overcoming struggles, and big ideas. So join me as we uncover some life lessons and knowledge. We're based out of Tokyo, Japan, and we'll be speaking with people from all over the world, ranging from artists, musicians, creatives, leaders, big thinkers, and those who strive to do and be great. Thanks for listening along. Now let's get inspired. Hi, everyone, and welcome once again to ADSR Inspirations. And I'm really excited for this one as we're back in Tokyo and we're going to be exploring the topics of music and writing with today's guest. These are topics the whole team is really passionate about here at ADSR Collective. Ian Martin is a 20 year resident of Japan by way of the UK. Shortly after finishing his studies in script writing for film and television at Bournemouth University, Ian made the leap to Japan and quickly immersed himself in Tokyo's massive underground indie music scene. Ian has worked extensively as a freelance journalist, specializing in Japanese pop and media culture with an emphasis on underground music. He wrote the monthly Strange Boutique column for the Japan Times and has written for MTV81, Time Out Tokyo, Metropolis, Otaku USA, The Wire, The Guardian, NPR, and more. After organizing shows, concerts, and live events for a time, Ian started his own label, Call and Response Records, which specializes in post-punk, indie rock, and new wave music from Japan. In 2016, Ian released his book, Quit Your Band, Musical Notes from the Japanese Underground, which was then translated and released in Japanese the following year. Both editions have received great praise from both people inside and outside of the music industry. I know it's been a tough couple of years for the music industry, particularly live indie music, but call and response carries on. And as of late, Ian has started scheduling shows again, including DJing some of them himself. I'm super interested in hearing his story and what he has planned for the future. Please welcome to the show, Ian Martin. Hi, thanks for having me on. Cheers. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for making the time and coming on. So I'd like to get into a little bit of your musical and journalism history. Um, growing up in the UK, I know it's the UK is often seen as you know, one of the musical meccas for live music and a lot of great, you know, legendary bands and music and albums have come into the UK. Were you big into music growing up? Were you playing in bands? Did you, uh, were you heavily involved with music from a young age? Uh, not heavily. Um, but I, you know, I grew up, um, I was a teenager around about the time that the whole Britpop thing was blowing up in the, the mid nineties. And I think that might have been just like the sort of the buzz around that. And just the fact that even um, being this kind of um, dweeby kid who didn't really know anything that was, didn't really know what was cool. Like that stuff was, was there, you noticed it, you know, mm. it was big enough. I mean, you, you know, I look back at it now and you can see just like how, 
sort of commercialized and um, how, how much of it was just hype, but um, it needed that level of commercialism and hype to kind of, to have reached me, you know, otherwise I, I wouldn't have noticed it was there. Mm. Um, but um, so that, that was probably like what meant that I ended up becoming a music dweeb rather than a video game dweeb, you know, which was, you know, I was kind of on the fence for a while about that. Um, you know, I, I was, I, I was, I was at the stage where it's like me and my friends in uh, secondary school were sort of like, we're going to program games for the Commodore Amiga. That's going to be like yeah. a big step into the world. But um, right. yeah, I, I kind of, I started tilting more and more towards music gradually from like the mid nineties. Um, sure. Mm. So I guess you mentioned the mid nineties, were you starting to go to shows at this point or were you collecting albums or what was, what was the process of really uh, exploring the scene at that point? Yeah. Like I started, obviously, you know, I started buying, um, well, CDs would have been mostly at that time. Um, and I guess like towards the, the end of the nineties. Yeah. I mean, like we'd go out to the sort of, you know, like the indie disco in uh, in Bristol or Bath, and um, the there, there was one particular club night that was um, running in Bath. Um, it was like every second Thursday night um, at Moles Club in Bath, and uh, it was called Purr, which I mean, I assume now was like named after the Sonic Youth song, which I, I didn't know at the time because like. You know, I, I wasn't cool enough to know what Sonic, what Sonic Youth was back then. But um, that th those club nights really sort of stuck with me, and I think that that that's like a really like formative influence on what I ended up trying to do later on when I moved to Tokyo, and I sort of really got involved in you know the music scene on a much more sort of um, hands-on sort of level. Um, in fact, one of the things about pair was that uh, I mean for, for, us, for one thing it was just it was one of those it was a night where like I realized that you could talk to the um to the DJ and that you know they're humans and you can talk to them they're not like these sort of alien things and just ha having that uh, like one, one of the DJs there Julia she was um you know she was just like a really nice person she came to visit me when I was in um in Tokyo, like a couple of years later, and maybe it's like the idea of music as something that's kind of accessible and that you can be part of it rather than just an audience of it. Mm. And then later on, when I was in Japan, like many, many years later, um, I ran into a guy in the music scene here um, who was like one of the founders, one of the guys who set up the Per Night, and you know, suddenly like he's coming to my events and kind of asking me for advice on like setting up stuff in here. And it's kind of like, you know, like you sort of, you made me, man. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Kind of coming around, coming around full circle. Yeah, it was nice. So I guess that was, that time was sort of end of secondary school, sort of starting into university. Yeah, kind of a uh, end of yeah end, end of secondary school. I, I was at university in Bournemouth, but mm. you know, okay, whenever I was back in town, we'd still uh, still hit up those nights. And then 
I was uh, going to a few shows kind of, I mean, not many bands were coming to Bournemouth, you know, but right. I, I'd occasionally catch them when I could. Yeah. Right. Right. So around this time as well, um, what was, what was your interest in writing? Like, um, were you interested in journalism? Were you doing some writing? I know you have down that you studied, um, script writing at university. Mm-hmm. Um, was that kind of what you thought you'd be doing or when did, when did the interest in writing really spark with you? Um, I don't know. I think I was always going to be a writer. Um, mm. I mean, I think, you know, that it's one of those things. I think my, my parents knew I was going to be a writer before I did, but, um, you know, my, I think my teachers all knew I was going to be a writer. Um, I don't know. Um, yeah, I thought I wanted to write film because film was cool in the, in the nineties. Mm. Um, you know, everyone wanted to be Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Um, you know, before he started to become a little bit, it was sort of, uh, maybe that's not as cool as we thought it was, kind of thing. But, um, you know, yeah, I, first I wanted to be Quentin Tarantino and then I wanted to be Wong Kar Wai. And um, I thought script writing was the way that I could get into that world with the. Um, the skill set that I had, which, you know, which was writing. I don't know. I mean, like I used to, even when I was like a, a kid, I was like writing letters to sort of, uh, Amiga power magazine and things like that. And mm. I, then I sort of graduated to writing letters to the NME when I was, you know, a bit older. Um, so maybe some, maybe things like that, really, real kind of like old school. It's like Morrissey started out writing letters to, you know, music magazines and things. So right. maybe it's part of that kind of old school lineage. It's what we used to do before we had the, the internet, you know, we'd write letters sure. to, to the magazines. Sure, sure, sure. Um, in terms of like any any projects that you had worked on, like you mentioned, um, you thought maybe you'd do some script writing or get into filmmaking. Had you, had you actually um, written some scripts or did you have some projects planned to make short films or things like that? Not really. Um, you know, like we, we made, made a short film at university just sort of as part of the, the course that we're doing. Which uh, the, the short film that we made at university was this film called um, The Juice, and it was just made. It, it was about a load of fruit who escape from a fruit bowl, and try to form a to form a rock and roll band. And they um, they track down this sort of legendary old fruit musician who is like a grumpy pineapple who tells them <laughs> that they should never follow their dreams because it's all bullshit. And then he kills the kiwi fruit by accident by impaling it on the um on the hi-hat and the other three decide that they have to kind of honor the kiwi's legacy and they sort of go on without him that that was we, we just kind of we, we just got real real bits of fruit and we just sort of threaded wire through them and just sort of dangled them like that like puppets and right. just recorded voiceovers 
And that was like the extent of, I, I, I don't know. I think what ended up happening was that I decided that like the, the course, at, um, the script writing course at Bournemouth was very focused on, it, it was very kind of realistic about like, okay, this is what the film industry and the TV industry is like. These are the kinds of things that you can do. These are the sort of, this is the way that you, it wasn't just, this mm. is how you write. It's also, this is how you kind of build a career. And I, the longer I was at it, the more I just thought, oh, it's too much working with other people. I don't want to do that. Like, right, right. Um, and so I ended up forming a record label, which is, which only involves working with loads of other people. (laughs) Right. So I guess in terms of writing about music and journalism, were you at that time, were you starting to do some writing on um, that, that sort of, those sort of things or not quite yet? No, just, um, I I don't know what I was writing at that time. Yeah. Just sort of my bullshit, um, movie scripts that were never going to get made or my uh you know i'd sort of start trying to write like an epic fantasy novel or something like that it was only i i don't know it was only when i uh, came to japan and started blogging about music that that kind of kicked off you know i was getting into the music scene here discovering all of these bands that no absolutely nobody was talking about Mm. and um my um my girlfriend at the time now now my wife like she um like her whole kind of specialist area was kind of um web design and um you know sort of uh online technologies and things and she was the one who sort of encouraged me to start you know there's these things called blogs you can do It's, it's easy i think you should do that you have all these things that you want to say, write it down on the blog and don't talk to me about it. You know, yeah. that sort of thing. So but yeah, that's, that, that's what kicked that off like 2003 or whenever. Right. Right. I'm curious about your transition to Japan. So when you first came over, um, I guess that was 2001, was it? Yeah. Right. So when you first came over, did you have any, um, did you have any plans or any, um, inclination that you'd, um, get into music or, um, that you'd be doing writing, um, journalism? Was that something that, um, no. was kind of in the back of your mind or no? no. Okay. Like um, I, I came over, I came to Japan primarily to put off making any decisions about what I was going to do with my future. Sure. Um, and yeah, and then my future just happened to me because that's how time works. Right. Yeah, I can relate with that one. <laughs> so then I guess the the progress or the process there was just you were you started going to shows, you were just getting more into the scene. During the early two thousands, how did you kind of what was what was what was it like? Um, were you always living around the Koenji area, and what was it like kind of discovering those shows and those bands? And how did you kind of first get into the scene? Um, I wasn't in 
the Koenji area to begin with. Um, like when I first came here, um, I was a little bit further out, kind of on the fringes of Tokyo. Um, and I think like the first, well, I mean, I, I saw a few shows by like foreign bands who were over here on tour. Um, I think the first show I saw in, in Japan was um, this Canadian band Sloan. Yeah. Um, and Sloan had, um, they, they were really cool guys, really nice guys. Like that, um, Chris Murphy was always like hanging out, hanging around outside the venue, like before the show and just like meeting anybody who wanted to talk to him and stuff. And I ended up having a chat with him before the show. And then like during the show, they were doing a bit of sort of call and response with the audience. And he, and the audience weren't really getting what he needed of them. He was kind of like, you know, I, there was a bit, there's sort of breakdown in the middle of the song. And he's like, I'm going to ask you, is rock and roll dead again? And the crowd were all sort of going, yeah, you know, because <laughs> like he asked them a question and he needs you to say no at that point. Right. So because I'm like this much taller than everybody else in the room, he, he picks me out and he goes, I'm going to ask the British guy, is rock and roll dead again? And I sort of shout back at him. No, it fucking isn't mate. <laughs> and then he makes fun of my accent and then, you know, they sort of kick off again. Then sort of years Years and years later, they released a, um, the band released a sort of official bootleg of that recording with me on it. And oh, nice. they, even like his question to me is like, I'm going to ask the British guy, is rock and roll dead again? Like they, they translated that to Japanese and they just put that text on the cover of it. So like if, they, if there's a sort of kicking off point, I didn't realize at the time, maybe it's that just like me being a sort of asshole in the music scene in Tokyo. <laughs> just sort of, um but the, the thing that maybe kicked it off really was um, me and my girlfriend went to see Shonen Knife and um, they did a show at quite a big venue. Actually, it was I think it was at the same venue that I saw Sloan at, at uh, Club Quattro in Shibuya. Mm-hmm. And, but the thing that they did was that they had like a completely unknown band as their opening act um they just let bands send in their demo cds and they just picked a demo cd they liked and they just invited that band to open for them at this like packed venue and quite a big venue and we you know i loved the opening band they were called the students um mentioned them in the book and they are um you know they were just sitting at a table outside selling their little cdrs for sort of 500 yen or just giving them away for free. I don't know. I don't remember now. And so we picked up a flyer for their next show, which was a completely different thing. It was out in Hachioji, really like one of the last stops in Tokyo before you're in the sort of countryside, before you're in the mountains, but kind of a big, it's quite a big city urban area in its own right. Um, and uh, this venue rips in Hachioji and it was just completely empty or almost completely empty is maybe six people in there or something and completely different experience watching a band playing in a place like that. And yet somehow like that was the kind of environment that I found myself sort of drawn into. And, you know, all that stuff I was saying before about like being at the Pura Nights in Bath and it's like, Oh, you can like talk to the DJ. Well, it's like, 
here the band the audience everybody's just kind of standing around in the same room um there's really nothing special about the people in the bands at all um and after a while going to these shows you see some of the same faces again and again and you know oh this is a community isn't it we've got our own little community here and so then writing about it was maybe the first way that i could find of like putting something back in that's what it kind of came down to i think mm-hmm. um yeah and of course it's like a way of like using something that i can do for myself as well isn't it um, sure yeah sure so around that time how did how did the first sort of writing gigs start to materially materialize then i mean i think it was a lucky time for me um that i was blogging at a time when that was sort of people were paying attention to blogs which you know like now nobody's paying attention to your blog um it's you've got to be doing a podcast now and i think even podcasts are starting to kind of lose their luster a little bit <laughs> good luck mate um like you know inevitably what and and I, maybe like what happened to me was like a, an early stage of this sort of same process right that um I, the music editor of the Japan Times around that time just knew about my blog. And I think I, me and him were DJing in a little bar somewhere. Like we both got booked to DJ in a bar in Shinjuku and we got talking and he sort of said, well, you can, how about doing some stuff for us as well? Um, so those were like my first paid writing gigs. Um, and I, you know, that, and that, that's sort of the process there where it's like people, you know, make a splash in a new medium or not make a splash, but, you know, people get some attention in a new medium. And then gradually the older mediums, the older media kind of recruit them and sort of start uh, co-opting that space, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and nowadays the you know, just like legacy media sort of behaves a lot like blogs, not as well as blogs did and not as interestingly or intelligently, but they do. Um, and I think with maybe with podcasts, I think you're seeing something similar there that it sort of starts out. It's like, oh my God, this is something new. We're getting completely different perspectives. But then as it kind of expands and grows and the pool of it just gets bit gets bigger, then some kind of filtering process needs, you know, starts to kind of emerge that separates the top from the everything else. And suddenly nobody's paying attention to the anything else anymore. Everyone's sure. being drawn towards the, the top. Um, same thing happens in the music scene when like a cool sort of new sort of music scene would start appearing in the like the small little clubs major labels come along they'll pick off one or two of the bands that they want and then those bands get the attention and the rest of it just withers and dies um you know it's a process sure Um, sure 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 in terms of um so i guess after that um the writing kind of branched out into 
was it mainly with the Japan Times stuff at that time, or you were branching out into? Yeah, I mean, I've never been the sort of writer who goes around pitching a lot of ideas to a lot of people. I don't like pitching ideas. Um, mm. If there's something I want to write about, then I can just write about it on my blog for free, yeah. and there isn't there's no editor hassling me about it or just telling me, you know. I, I think that there's a problem. I, I, I mean. I, I, I don't know if like I'm a good inspiration for um, people in this way because I've never been very sort of commercially ambitious in what I've done. I, I do get paid for writing, but I don't certainly don't make a living out of it. But most of my um, living comes from copywriting for an ad agency that fortunately doesn't get my name attached to it. So I'm not sort of, you know, I, I can I can still be sort of um, a stuck up indie snob in my music writing. <laughs> And there isn't, and you know, people can't come back to me and be saying, hey, I just saw that commercial that you wrote for that mega corporation somewhere. <laughs> and sort of, oh yeah, indie much. Like, but um, yeah, you know, I, I work, I work a regular living to pay the bills. And part of what that gives me is the freedom to be a bit picky about what I choose to write about in the stuff that does get my name attached to it. And if I was really serious if i'd really decided to kind of take music writing seriously and make that my living for one stupid thing to do because <laughs> music isn't a great thing to get involved in if you want to make money out of it but secondly the way you've got to do that is you've got to pitch constantly all the time and when you're pitching you're not thinking about what do i want to write about you're thinking mm. about what can i tolerate writing about that is what there is some market out there for. And what that really means now, because like I said, the sort of um, regular media has just sort of basically absorbed everything that the kind of blogging scene was doing like 15, 20 years ago. What that means is that you're, you're selling them what page views they can get from this topic that you're going to write about. That... Um, okay, here's a thing that a lot of people are into, you know. It, it means you're always chasing trends anyway, mm. and I don't want to do that um, because I'm a 43-year-old man who doesn't give a shit about what 16-year-olds are listening to or interested in it. Right. right, right <laughs> well, you right. know, I'm, I'm not uninterested in, in what they're doing, but it's like I'm interested in the stuff that I'm interested in and that's kind of the world that I want to write about. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. It's, it seems to be, seems to me like whatever like art form you're doing, if you're kind of chasing, you know, what you kind of expect from the audience, it can become a little bit tedious or it can become like a full-time job. Right. And it also, I mean, it also leads to a kind of, to a sort of groupthink among other writers. You can see that in the way that, um, well, in, in the way that the media works generally, because people don't have time to have to, to form their own opinions about things. So I think that just as a writer, it's just so much easier to just see what other people are saying. You know, or it's not like that you're copying what other people feel, but I think what happens is that, you know, forming what you really think about something takes time. Um, and what you end up 
doing is like you second guess your own opinions about things. You don't want to look stupid online. So you kind of look at what other people are saying and you kind of think, oh, yeah, that sounds about right. And then everything that you're what you're writing about starts to sort of it, it all kind of starts to move together to and, you know, it's like you see it with like movie criticism where just sort of everybody just decides that a movie is good or everyone just decides mm. that a movie is bad. That's sort of, you know, like all the reviews recently saying like, uh, was it Eternals came out recently? Everyone's decided that's a bad film now. And right. I went to see it and it's like, it's not a perfect film, but it's, it's a perfectly fine film. It's as good as any other Marvel film, probably. I don't know. Mm. Um, it's it <laughs> um everyone just decided but everyone's decided no this is a bad film but those other films are good films it's like, what no they're, they're <laughs> the same they're they're good and bad in their own sort of maybe slightly different ways but fundamentally they're not that different um i don't know like um everyone decides this band is an important band right now and that this is the band that we're going to talk about um I think there's. It's nice having the freedom to ignore that, or to not pay attention to those kinds of things. Just be to be outside of the conversation. Mm. Yeah, it's annoying as well because I want people to pay attention to me, but that's the thing. You know, I don't. I don't want to kind of pursue the conversation, kind of into some territory that's not mine. Right. Right. So, I guess what I hear you saying is maybe there's like a few people at the top of the industry or these kind of gatekeepers who are kind of they're putting out their agenda or they're putting out an opinion and then most of the most of the people are kind of siding with them or they're not kind of forming I don't know if it's even that top down I think it's just sort of um the way that when you're, you know, just the way that when you're in a sort of group of people, basically you want to agree with them. You you don't mm. want conflict, right? And it's not that you, it's it's not a conscious thing that people that people are doing. It's just it's more. I, I mean, it's it's laziness. Really, it, I mean, no, no not na- laziness because the, these writers are working very, very hard, like, mm. but they don't have a lot of time, and everything is very, you know, because like opinion leads, but opinions are difficult, original opinions are difficult things to come by, you know. So, I think people are just sort of easily influenced by what other people around them are saying, that's all, and sure, um, but but at the same time. Yeah, like um, the record labels that have money or the talent agencies that have money or that um, whoever's got good management and PR. Yeah, it's very, that that kind of, you know, that need for content that the writers, um, that writers and media have is very vulnerable to that sort of influence for the, for those very same reasons, I think. Like, if you're talking about Japanese 
underground music, indie music in the West at the moment, then, you know, whenever people from the West are asking me, people are sort of, oh, you sort of Japanese underground music. They all want to talk about like Otoboke Beaver, for example, right? Which is a band that, that, you know, outside of Kyoto, I don't think that band are an enormous big deal here. I mean, they're, they're, they're a popular band. They're a very good band, but it's like, they're talking about that band because they've toured the UK and because they've got like overseas labels who are just sort of drawing attention to them. And so I think that maybe people in the West have like a, you know, the kinds of people who are paying attention to Japanese underground music in the first place think, you know, have a, have a sort of a very different sense of like that band's status in the scene here. Mm. A status is an ugly word to use, but, you know, you won't here in Tokyo. You won't see them. They don't come here. You know, it's yeah. um, like they're um, they're they're definitely not a band that's in it. They're, they're not a band you'll hear people talking about kind of um, in the music bars and clubs when you're chatting with your mates in the scene. It's it, it's not that they're not important. It's just that they're not. Um, their their sphere is somewhere else um mm. and I, I think you so i think you get that a lot like i mean the um and the maybe if you're selling stuff if you're trying to write about japanese music in the english language mostly you're writing for overseas media right mostly There's, there are things like the japan times but most of it's going to be overseas and so what you're selling, what they're selling is really kind of being driven by the sort of, I don't know, it's, um, it's very difficult when you're in that position to really pick up to pick up on what's going on it's it's very easy like mm. oh this one band is important it's really just because that band's pr is good mm. a lot of the time i mean they, there's writers like patrick saint michel who who've like been based here for a long time and they they really sort of pay attention to a lot of what's happening in particular kinds sort of site in particular aspects of the music scene i think they um there's there's writers who kind of know what they're doing like james hadfield as well and um, he writes a lot of stuff for the wire about sort of more experimental side of things um you know patrick's very good for i think a, a certain sort of like what i'd call internet music um there, there are good there are good writers who know what they're talking about for sure based right. here right 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 um but overall, yeah, it can be very influenced by the sort of labels, by the PR, that sort of thing. Eh, whatever, it's fine. In terms of um, paying attention to some of that foreign media, do you do you try and keep up with sort of what uh, what their take is on certain Japanese bands or the indie scene, or do you? Is not that really. not really? Yeah, <laughs> I am. Um, um, if I see some foreign media have written about Japanese music, I'll check and see if a friend of mine wrote it, but otherwise it's, just, <laughs> I, I just assume it's bullshit. Yeah. 
I don't know. I mean, I I occasionally there, there was something um, there was something interesting that um, so you know like Bandcamp has its own blog, right? Sure. They have their own sort of um, they they do a lot of articles picking up on stuff on there, and there was a, an interesting article on that about um, the way they pitched it was interesting. It was like the was about the kind of um, the sort of genreless underground raves was how they pitched it. And what they were describing is definitely not what I would call a rave, but it was, it collected together a bunch of things in an interesting way. That, that, that was interesting. I don't know. Some, sometimes if something comes up, mm-hmm. occasionally yeah. it does. I, I guess there's a lot of writers now who are just sort of, you know, one, one or two generations uh, below me who I just don't know and I don't run into them because, you know, just the generation gap means that we kind of circulate in slightly different fields. And so I think maybe like what these writers are coming up with is, you know, their own story about Japanese music that would be different from mine and could be really interesting. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I want to jump back to um, the label a little bit and um, jump back into your story with, so you branched out into the writing and then you were going to, you were going to shows quite a bit. And I guess you started putting on shows at this point and DJing as well. Yeah. I mean, DJing is probably putting, putting it too strongly for what I do. That's just plain songs, isn't it? I don't know. Um, Are just you playing using songs vinyl, vinyl records? Sometimes, but yeah. usually I can't be bothered. It's heavy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, um, it, it, there's some stuff that I have on vinyl that I don't have elsewhere. So, you know, if I want to play that, I'm playing vinyl. But a lot of the time it's um, sort of, just using some kind of apps that um, that allow me to queue up songs, and it's more like just kind of it's it's more like just playing background music, basically. I think most people aren't really listening to it. Um, depends on the event, depends on right. the party, depends on the theme, depends what bands are playing, depends who right. I, who's there, that sort of thing. Right, right. So. You were going to a lot of shows, and then how did how did you get the idea? Oh, I I know all these people. I could put on a good show. Or when did the process sort of start to come around where y- you were the one that were organizing these events? About a year after the blog started, really, it was just I was going to the shows. But there'd be you get five shows and five bands a night in the uh, in the event of which two or if you're lucky three will be okay and after a while I started thinking well you know how much does it cost to rent one of these venues and do it myself so we started doing that I mean the other thing as well is that the standard system for how bands would play is that it's pay to play so the bands are paying the venue for the stage and I think that's not a great 
situation for the bands, especially when they're kind of being thrown together in this kind of random sort of way a lot of the time. So if somebody's organizing the whole show, then you've got like a much more coherent night. You can build a community out of that and, you know, take on the financial responsibility from the bands, which ended up being a, you know, pissing away a lot of my own money. Um, I've been doing, I've been doing it long enough now that there's enough venues that won't, that don't charge me that I'm not really losing money now or Mm. on that so much. But, um, yeah, it it sort of came from that. It was just sort of going to shows and just thinking I can do this better basically. Right. Uh, I mean, not sort of, not that much, not particularly more successfully, (laughs) but, um, just better in my mind. Right. Like bands that you liked and you, you'd want to see play together and then you knew them all and it was just kind of, I guess, organic how it sort of came around. Yeah. Kind of something like that was, was so then the label, was that a similar sort of process then? Yeah. You were putting on the shows for a little bit. And then um, the first thing was like a compilation album, right? right. right? And these yeah. these are all the bands that I've been sort of booking together at shows. Like, I, I think like one of the things about the music scene in Tokyo is that it tends to be, still tends to be very fragmented. That music that I think kind of lives quite comfortably together, like in my head, the fans of those two types of music just do not even meet each other, you know? And so I was kind of trying to mix things up a bit. And with the compilation, you can kind of see that it's divided into two parts and like phase one and a phase two. I I sort of wanted it to kind of, even though it was on a CD, I wanted it to feel like a vinyl album where you've got a side A and a side B and each one has a slightly different theme. And there it was kind of recognizing a little bit that there's two sort of worlds here that don't usually interact with each other. And I'm putting them both on the same CD, but they were kind of separated enough on the CD that they still kind of had their own territory. I guess I I was sort of, it was a bit of a sort of meta commentary on the, uh, the shape of the scene at the time. Right. Right. And then when you actually started, I guess, signing bands to your label or coming coming to an agreement about releasing albums with mm. bands. What was the process like for that? The same, really. It's just like, hey, do you want me to release this? And so right. they'd give me the data. I'd send it off and make the CDs and try and get shops to take them and things and try and get people to buy them and you know a a lot fewer people than I kind of expected or wanted did those things but I kept at it and um, (laughs) it'd be nice to sort of say oh finally I became a big success with it but um, I think we're more um more than that, I think it's been a process of just constantly redefining what I consider success to mm. fit the th- sort of things that have ended up happening. 
if that makes sense. Um, that um, I think that the question of what is success, what does success mean in this world, has become like a, a big question for me over the last few mm. years. Because um, the longer you do it, like if if I haven't been a success, if I've been doing this for like more, well, the label fifteen years now, if I've been doing this for fifteen years, sixteen years coming up to, um, and I haven't been successful, then I really need to quit, right? Like, it's maybe it's time to stop if you're still a failure after all this time. Um, so I think there's, uh, you have to think a lot about what success means. Um, what is it that you want out of it? Or what is it that you're getting out of it? Um, do the, are the things that I thought I wanted when I started the things that I actually need, or is it that, you know, I've been getting something else out of it and that that's what matters really. Um, I don't know. It's uh, something that I've been introspecting on so, a lot over the last right, few years. You say that, how, what, what do you kind of consider success in running the label? Um, what, what sort of things are you, I mean, maybe, I'm sure it's changed over time. What what sort of things maybe were you looking to achieve when you started and what sort of things are you sort of hoping to achieve with it now, say, you know, 15 years later? Um, I don't know what I wanted when I started and I'm not sure I knew at the time. I mean, probably because I was... I, I was you know, in my mid twenties, I probably, I just wanted sort of, I wanted to be cool and for people to love me. Right. Um, I don't think I ever really sort of had make a lot of money as one of my particular goals for right. it, but I, it'd be really nice to not lose money. Um, and you know, that remains a sort of, <laughs> that remains a goal. <laughs> Um, that one day I'm, I hope to achieve. But I think, I mean, increasingly what, um, what I think kind of makes it, the, the mark of success is just being able to keep doing it. And so, of course, money's part of that, or at least not losing too much money, you know, being able financially to keep doing it. But also like, to just keeping the motivation and keeping the kind of energy to keep doing it because the music scene can be an absolute bitch for things like that. It, it's like you're burning your own fuel and you're not really getting refueled from anywhere. The, um, there's not a great sort of, um, blog or zine culture here that sort of gives you sort of feedback and that when you do something, to know that other people appreciate it, you know, there's not a lot that really gives you that. I, I think um, in foreign countries, people are a bit better at that kind of thing. People are a bit better at just like shouting about what they like. Um, whereas 
I think a lot of people in the music scene here tend to sort of enjoy stuff quite privately <laughs> and um, you don't really, it's difficult to know that where you've had an impact on them. Um, so f- being able to kind of find the motivation to keep going is a, is a difficult thing. and But being able to actually do it every year mm. that you're doing it and that you don't quit, that's success. Um, and I think that's another reason, it goes back a little bit to what I was saying about um, the writing and it, it's about like, you know, not pursuing success too much. I mean, I, for a start, there's nothing worse than just somebody who compromises everything in pursuit of success and then fails anyway. I think that's just sad. If you're going to fail anyway, you might as well fail doing the thing that you want, right? Um, and I, I think that I, I've seen people... I know that there's there's stuff that you can that they say that you should do, you know, stuff about the kind of the way of um, promoting yourself and like, you know, you've got to aim big to achieve big, that kind of thing. And I've seen people do that and then and they burn out very very quickly. Well, um, the way I've the, the reason I've been able to keep doing it for um, for as long as I have is partly sort of managing my expectations and not just thinking about sort of how can I make this thing the biggest thing, but to rather thinking about sort of, I'm going to put as much into this as I can that still allows me to sort of keep doing it. You know, there's never been a make or break moment and I don't want there to be right. because right. I don't want to break. <laughs> right. Um, maybe it's sort of, a, it's kind of, being unambitious but I, th- I think it's I, I don't think so I think being able to keep doing something for 25 years is not an unambitious thing you know I, I for sure I'm a long distance runner not a sprinter so in in running the label has it primarily been yourself do you work mm-hmm. with a, you work with a team now has, has it changed much over the years Um, I definitely wouldn't have been able to do it the way that I have without a lot of help from a lot of people. Um, there's not like a team, strictly speaking, but there are definitely a lot of people sort of, um, that I work with on one thing or another thing. Um, like, um, my friend, my friend Shingo, uh, Rally. Uh, as he's known from the band Tropical Death at the moment, he was like um, a big supporter from like quite early times with the label, and he's he's helped a lot. Um, like Ryotaro from Loop Rider, like he's another person. Like a lot of the time, it's just they'll they'll have an idea for doing something that they'll by doing something, I'll see like a way of doing it that I could be doing, you know. The, the problem with my approach, which I think you might be able to figure out, is that it can be very conservative because I'm I'm looking at keeping going. I'm not looking at kind of breaking new ground um, in like my approach necessarily. But the people around me will they'll have different ways of doing things, and that when I can see it working for them, then that gives me the kind of 
um, uh, it kind of opens a door for me to sort of be like, all oh, right, that works. I'll do that then. Um, my friend uh, Mayumi from the band People, P-I-P-L-E, like she was someone who started organizing events sort of around about the same time I did. So we kind of came up together through the scene. And in the last sort of five years or so, we've started working together on a lot of stuff. And my label put out her band and things. And she's been incredible because, you know, those moments when I think we maybe she and I both feel similarly, look, it's very easy to kind of lose your motivation and to lose your energy. And when one of us is feeling like that, often the other right, one right. of us is, is on and up <laughs> and you end up kind of pulling the other person with you. Um, you know, my, um, there's no way that I could do any of it without my wife. She sort of hates me kind of getting her involved in things, but you know, um, I mean, just the fact that she's been incredibly supportive of something that's like an absolute waste of time by any kind of rational, um, way of looking at it is pretty incredible. I, um, I, I'm running out of, I, I'm, I'm scared of leaving anybody out now. Um, my friend Matt, who, uh, Matt Schley, he's, uh, he, he's done a load of music oh, videos okay. for us and things as well. Like visual Sure. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Loads I of imagine, people. Like, yeah. We're 15 you know, years. This, and stuff. The list is quite, uh, quite extensive. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of, I'm kind of curious, like you mentioned, you know, one of your things is, you know, maintain, keep going on. Um, of course, like relationships with bands and people on the labor label, um, I'm sure may have fractured throughout the years, or there may be different ideas, you know, your idea of success and a band or a group you're working with may have a different idea. Um, has has there been some times maybe where you've had some failures or breakdowns or things that you've learned through that process and working with groups throughout the years? Um, I mean, obviously, like, there's, yeah, I've had kind of, well, of the bands that I work with, um, I always try to be as honest as I can with any artist that I start working with. This is what I can do for you. This, this is, this is what you'll definitely get. This is what might happen. This is what you can do to maybe make a little bit more happen. And I've got better at, um, I've, I've got better at explaining that and making that clear to, from the start but and yeah like i and different bands have different approaches like it, it's often it's about how much they expect from me and how much they want to kind of con take control of what they're doing themselves um and it's as long as as long as we're clear about that then it's usually okay. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of bands who wished they'd 
got more successful than they did. And I definitely feel like I, I, I look back over some of the early releases that we've done and it's like that mm. band should have been so much bigger than they were. They should have been huge. I've ruined them, you know, like, but I don't, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think, I don't get the sense right. that any of them blame me for it. <laughs> um, like I, I still have, um, I, you know, I, I still have good relationships with most of the, like, I can't think of any musicians that I've released in the past that I have bad any kind of bad relationship with there's definitely people in the music scene that i've had like horrendous fights with and um and stuff um especially like because as a writer and and as a participant in the music scene sometimes i'm I'm writing things about bands that they just do not want written like on published about them i i think i'm pretty sort of careful about what i say about other people in the scene um but still like people people don't like you saying anything right, about right. them sometimes you know so in for example like in terms of you know a band on your label like you don't have any qualms if if they would come up to you and say oh well i'm thinking of going to this other label they're offering me this and this and Yeah, I don't sign them for contracts. We just do, we'll do one release and then, you know, take it from there. Um, There's no sort of like, like, I I mean, there have been situations where, like, um, yeah, like I'll put a lot into a band and then they, obviously, like if a bigger label comes along and wants a band that I've released, then, you know, I can't complain about that really. So sometimes you feel a little bit sort of miffed that it's like, ah, oh, you were, you were going to be my, my one, you were going to be the labels kind of breakout act. And it annoys me when that happens. And then it's like everything that I did with the band got erased. Like, you'll see that album, you'll, you'll see the new album getting kind of promoted kind of in big display in the record stores. And it's like, okay, so put my CD that I did with them kind of there in the display as well then. Right. But you know, the record store doesn't give a shit. Um, (laughs) You know, it's always fucking P vine stealing my bands, but then P P vine put out my book. So I can't really complain. (laughs) (laughs) I know it it doesn't, honestly, it doesn't really happen on um, no, nobody who's ever released on Corner Response has ever become successful. So, <laughs> um, there's a few bands who've released stuff on the mm. on compilations that I've put out who've um, moved moved on, but the, the scene is it, it it fucking it it does the, it it kills everybody's ambitions. It's an, mm. it's not a good place to be ambitious. <laughs> in, I think uh, I know that sounds so depressing, but. Um, like um i'm dealing in a kind of music that fundamentally doesn't seem to have like a, a huge amount of traction here so right, right. You, you have what you build like it yourselves. really has to be um, you really have to have your own reasons or your own passions 
for doing it seems to be the case, right? Yeah. And you have to find or make mm. other people with those same passions. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the other thing as well, it's like th there's a sort of ladder that you can sort of go up where it's like, oh, they, the band's at the next level up or something, and you sort of get the bands playing together and things. But it's like, there just aren't that many bands that I like that are popular enough. And I, I don't want to book right. a band that I don't like just because they're successful. You know, there's, you know, sort of bands like Melt Banana, and above that, I don't really like anything. <laughs> so um, that they, they, they're like the Melt Banana are like the most popular band that I love in this country. Melt Banana, DMBQ, those kinds of, that, that, those greater bands. I'm not going to be like, as soon as a band's like, <laughs> oh yeah, talk to our manager. I'm just like, oh, fuck off. I don't right, want to talk right, to your manager. Right. So I, I guess in running the label and um, you've had loads of experience and, you know, I'm sure made mistakes, learned things along the way. Um, which, you know, you... <laughs> Part, the, the key to my success is I learn nothing. I, I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, have you had <laughs> opportunities where, like, bigger labels or um, music companies, someone in the industry would want to, like, give you an offer or take you on, but then you were like, no, I'm happy doing my thing. I don't want to be part of this. <laughs> not really no, no no one's no one's interested in a, in what we're doing um no what we've i mean we sometimes get for example people doing kind of things overseas you know maybe want to kind of hook up is there some way that we can kind of work together and it's something that i once or twice i've tried it and i always feel a little bit like a um um i feel a bit like a con man accepting it because I, it's just I, I feel like I can't really offer them what what they want. Um, I don't want to disappoint people in that way. And the, I, the other thing I suppose was that, that there was a period where I was getting a whole bunch of like mails from people who were like looking to source music for advertisements and stuff, and they they wanted me to sort of. Yeah, they, they were trying to get me to kind of be like a local agent for them in sort of seeking out music for commercial purposes. And mm. I that that was one that I really shied away from. Um, I mean, even though, uh, you know, nowadays in my, my day job is sort of entirely kind of in advertising. Right. <laughs> Not entirely, but a large part of it. But um, I just making yeah. that part of what I do about music, I didn't want to. Um, th they all wanted, they, they all kept saying, we want it to be like urban and lo-fi. And I'm like, lo-fi means something different to you to what it means to me, doesn't it? Like to me, lo-fi means sort of early 90s guided by voices. And I don't think they want that. I don't think they want music that sounds like something off Vampire on Titus or like the early Sebado demos like lo-fi means something else now it's weird it just means kind of shit hip-hop or something um 
and I yeah I just don't think any of the music that I like or deal with is what advertisers want and I, I just sort of right do, right not my, but not my world not you've my sort team. of afforded yourself the freedom like like you've said you know um by having your day job and not relying on the label or your writing specifically it seems like you have a bit more freedom to kind of do things when you want on sort of how you want. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it, that was kind of an important part of just how I, how I, kind of, I, I organize, I've organized my life entirely around being able to do this stuff that I want to do, but also around not needing it. Um, because once you need it, then you're somebody's bitch. Like once you need it, you're um, you're kind of trapped by it. Um, I, I think there's it, it's a it's a sort of it's a strange kind of balance that it has to kind of live in. And of course, you know, I do, um, I, um, I do. I do make money out of it, especially on the writing side. You know, I make money from that. Um, I do kind of, it, it does contribute to my, to my living. Um, but I, yeah, it, it's, um, it's a, it's a difficult balance to make and everybody has to sort of find where they're comfortable with. I definitely don't want to be like the guy who's right. saying to other people, it's like, yeah, you should do what I've done. Like, um, it's more just like, if you don't, it's just, if you want to be, if, if you want to make music, your entire and, and writing your entire living, then you've got to either be extremely lucky or there's a lot of compromises you're going to have to be prepared to, to make um, in order to do that. For me, the living isn't the important bit. I can make a living doing anything, but the music's the important bit. And so what keeps that, what, what keeps that going as best I can is the thing that right. I've right. prioritized. Um, um, well, you yeah. mentioned the, uh... You mentioned your writing, and I wanted to get into your book mm. a little bit. So, was that the mm. first? That was the first book that you had written, or you had written shorter, shorter sort of, um, I guess, non non articles, non journalism writing before, or was that? Uh, the first kind of full length. That, that, that was the, f the first and only book I've written. Yeah. I I've been sort of, um, mm -hmm. tormenting myself over a second book for a long time. Um, but like I, I, I spent like about six months sort of with a break in between with a break in the middle traveling around Japan a few years ago, just sort of going around, everywhere that isn't Tokyo, mm -hmm. just like all the other 46 prefectures of Japan and kind of looking at the sort of local underground indie music scenes in those, uh, in those places. Cause I felt like the, the first book 
was you know by its nature drawing a lot right. from my experiences in the Tokyo music scene but you know there's a whole other country out there I mean of course all the same things are happening in those other places as well really but um, yeah I did that like a few years ago and wrote a blog about it and always had this sense that like I'd compile it into a book and it was really I don't know kept putting it off but during the pandemic I had a lot of free time and I think as well like with the pandemic what that ended up doing was yeah because it just shut down the music scene almost completely it drew a line between the sort of world that I was describing in those travels and and now and maybe kind of threw a little bit of perspective on them mm. that perhaps made it a little bit easier to write now um before that book originally what happened was i was writing my column for the japan times which you mentioned earlier and um my publisher matthew he was um he's uh, a lecturer a professor now at um a university in Tokyo and he was using a lot of my articles with his students because he was doing a class about mm-hmm. um, pop culture um, in Japan and he wanted to he has his own little uh, indie publisher Ally Books and he wanted to put out a compilation of my columns which he, he came to me with the idea and I sort of, sort of oh no old writing I'd, I don't I don't like that that's bad that's bad I said, I'll write you a new book. And so it, it the book was really, you can see the, I mean, if you read it, you can kind of see the way that, especially the later chapters are sort of divided, that they're talking about different topics about the music scene and they're all expansions on ideas that I mentioned in my Japan Times columns. But I tried to write it in a way that linked it together into some, you know, tried to put in some sort of connective tissue in there that made it a book rather than just a collection of sure. So unrelated. You, was essays. this something like you had in the back of your mind for a while, or if uh, Matthew, um, your editor, wouldn't have mentioned it to you, it probably wouldn't have come to fruition. I don't want to say it wouldn't have come to fruition because, like, the idea may have come to me in another way, but. Yeah, no, a publisher came to yeah. me and said, I want to do a book of yours. So I said, okay. That's the way that all my writing goes. If someone comes to me and says, hey, we want you to do this, yeah. I usually say yes. I don't like saying no to requests. Um, but if it's <laughs> if I have to go around begging, then right, right, nah, right. fuck off, I can just write for myself. I don't care. I don't need the money, so whatever. So... Yeah, I, I don't know what it, it probably wouldn't have happened in that form. I mean, that's the other thing about kind of just grown older is, and being in a community is that when you're not moving forward, somebody else is, and you keep, um, you're in a network of people. And after a while, you you know, people give each other helping hands if somebody. Um, if somebody's doing something that I think is good, then maybe I'll kind of bring them into something that I'm doing. And fortunately, I've been very, I've been lucky that people around me have been 
kind enough to bring me into things that they were doing as well, that they felt that stuff that I was doing was of value and right, right. So uh, useful. So it wasn't, it wasn't like some goal or some bucket list thing. Oh, I have to write a book. It was more just kind of circumstance. Yeah. Although I think it was, um, it was perhaps a natural progression of what I was already doing. Like, I, I think that, you know, I was saying before that, um, about how when you're writing, you're always basically kind of selling the interest in the topic to the publisher. If you're writing about a band, you're selling, oh, this band, there's some attention around this. This is going to bring you some some page views. But if where the, where it doesn't have that, where that doesn't exist, the... the um, the thing that you're selling ends up being yourself, doesn't it? It's just, you have to trust that your own voice, that your own sort of whatever it is you are, has some kind of attention, has some sort of kind of interest or appeal. And if I want to keep writing, then I have to kind of, I I had, in order to contextualize the music that I'm writing about, I can't contextualize it by saying this is important. This is something that is like a hot thing at the moment because it isn't, you know, but if I kind of, the, 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 the center that it all kind of gathers around ends up being me. And so I have to find a way of making myself interesting enough that somebody would want to read something written by me. Um, there, there was, there were some readers of the Japan times column who, would kind of check in because they just found the way that I wrote was interesting and they liked, you know, they liked me as a raconteur. And with the book, it was a way of sort of developing that outside the kind of restrictions of a newspaper column where, you know, where everything has to be wrapped up within 750 words, where like the focus needs to be, you, you need to be much more rigid on how you focus in on the topic when you've got a little bit more space, a little bit of a broader playground, then that actually allows me to write in a more interest or a way that might be more interesting because I can be a bit more introspective and talk about the music in terms of my relationship with the music. Obviously there's a danger with that, that it ends up just becoming completely self-absorbed, self-regarding, but, um, I don't know. It, it, in some ways, it's just like the only way to frame to frame it. It's, it's, it's a kind of it's a way of framing it so that it makes sense. Um, so mm, you know, I maybe I would have yeah. needed to do the right. book sooner or later, even right, if I right. hadn't. So been it seems like you already have this idea of a second book floating around in your head, and you. You mentioned, I was checking out that blog. So can you explain a little bit? Um, you had cycled around, was was that what it was? You were cycling around in 2018, you were cycling around a good part of Japan and searching out live houses and searching out 
um, local bands and whatnot. Oh, okay. Uh, 2015 to 16, I did it. Um, I, um, yeah, I, I kind of was finishing the final drafts of my first book during the final stages of the, the trip, but it took me a couple more years to just like finish posting up my notes into the blog form, right. which is why I think the last posts are maybe 2018. Um, yeah, after doing it, I really sort of, um, um, I really lost motivation to kind of, to finish. I, I really had to kind of push myself. Um, yeah, that was the idea. It was, I felt that the first book had been, it was always meant to be a second book, um, that the first one had focused a lot on Tokyo. I do mention a few other places in this sort of appendices at the end, but the, yeah, I thought, I was also just thinking, because around about that time, I was losing interest in what I was doing for the that Japan Times column. I didn't really want to write about Japanese pop culture. I didn't want to write about things that were happening in the charts and things that were sort of going on in yeah. the, that pop culture. Um, right. Um I wanted to, but I wanted to find a way to keep writing about music that would be sort of unique and still have its own little corner of the, um, its own little corner of the discourse. Um, yeah, that would still, that would allow me to not compromise on the stuff that I that I was interested in. And so I thought if I could trick people into thinking it was a travel kind of, it, it was travel literature, then that might be one way of making it still interesting, but also I can still keep talking about the stuff that I want to talk about. That was the starting point of that. So um, were yeah. you were, were you big into cycling at the time? Was it challenging? Not at to... all. Okay, so how did you, what was the training like? How did you plan out the trip? Um, I didn't really know what I was doing. I <laughs> just decided to do it and kind of figure it up, pick it up as I go along. Um, just, I think the one, like what I thought to begin with, right, was like um, one of my wife's honeymoon, what we did was um, we took a, um, we took a night bus to Osaka and starting in Osaka, we just kind of got on the train going west, and then we'd just get off the train anywhere that seemed interesting and just book the hotel kind of there on the day. And we just kept going to see if we could get to Nagasaki in a week. And, you know, it was nice. We stopped in a different city every night. We kind of, um, you know, we'd stop off at a place for kind of a different city for lunch and then move on to the next place for dinner and a hotel. And it was interesting. It was just nice seeing all these different places. And I had this idea, oh, maybe I could just sort of go around the country like that, just using the local trains to get from one place to another. And then my wife said, you're getting fat. You should do it on a bicycle. <laughs> and so it was like, all right, you know what? I will. And I, I didn't do it all on the bicycle. I totally cheated. And, you know, there's a lot of mountains in this country, you know. Yeah, I'm not gonna, I don't <laughs> want to deal with that. I dealt with a few, and it was horrible. Um, so there were a few bits where I kind of packed up my bike on, went, on, took a train over the mountains, 
but yeah, it was mostly on the bicycle, I suppose. Right, right. About eighty percent on the bike. So, was it? It was pretty much continuous, or you went back and forth a little bit. Like I did it in two stages, well, two main stages. Um, the first stage I started in Sapporo, and I worked my way back to Tokyo, mm. kind of all through the east of Japan, and then the sort of that, then I. There were a couple of places, like there were a couple of prefectures, like, um, where was it? Like um, Kanazawa and Toyama, which were sort of a bit out of the way, though it was difficult to plan a route that would kind of get me through them. I sort of just took a separate trip up to visit those places, um, just by train over the winter. And then uh, Okinawa, same thing. It's I'm not cycling yeah. to Okinawa, am I? <laughs> um, but then the, the the main second stage started in Miyazaki and kind of curled its way back to Tokyo from the west. Right. So the goal the goal was to hit up every prefecture, mm-hmm. and within the prefecture, how many did you kind of know about some spots already? Did you have contact contacts in these places? Um, let's see. I knew people in. Uh, Hokkaido, uh, Hokkaido, Aomori, um, where else? Sort of vaguely new people in Fukushima. Um, then mo- it was more in the West because I, I think the music scene tends to sort of gather more West and the population of Japan sort of is bit more concentrated towards the west i knew loads of people in like fukuoka kind of around kyushu i knew about a whole bunch of people um and then i knew people in like hiroshima osaka kyoto now the big cities right um and then i i was fortunate to that you know people who kind of knew what i was doing kind of threw me in contact with friends of theirs in other prefectures like I, um, like I remember when it, it where was it? Um, in Tokushima was interesting one because I knew absolutely nothing about Tokushima at all. Um, but then, like um, Agata from Melt Banana just said, "Oh, I know a guy there," and he just sort of calls up this guy, and then this guy calls up his brother, and then his brother calls up like all the local lifehouse owners, and then these guys call up a whole bunch of bands and. I arrived there and there's like sort of 15 people kind of gathered around a table in this Chinese restaurant and they just told me everything. Um, that was amazing. Um, yeah. Um, you know, then, you know, some sort of students there just took me around their kind of uh, university band circle and so, oh, there's a club night on tonight. Come out there. You know, that was amazing. Just sort of complete coming from a complete blank slate to just sort of meeting almost like the entire music scene in one night just because this one guy made a phone call to his sort of friend right right yeah i'm sure well it, it sounds like sounds like an incredible trip and all the while you were writing and documenting and getting some inside access to scenes and bands was that is, is that accurate? Uh, yeah, uh, up to a point. I mean, I think the way the book's kind of been panning out over the past year has been sort of coloured a lot by the 
the sort of situation since then and kind of you know reflecting on the journey about sort of in it maybe it's a bit i mean the the danger is kind of what i was just saying about how it can end up being too introspective and i i i'm i've written a kind of i've got a first draft kind of written and i'm i've just put it aside for a while and i I need to get back to it soon and just start reading back and thinking what is this like what's this about actually and then maybe i can kind of hone it into something i'm still not sure what it is yet right right (laughs) is that that's kind of a goal for the next uh the next say like six months or something do you have a time frame when you're hoping to um i mean there's a date next june when I want to release it, because if I release it on this particular day, next June, then that will mean that the time has the same amount of time will have elapsed from my first book to my second, as it will be the same amount of time as elapsed between the first classic Stone Roses album and the second disappointing Stone Roses album. (laughs) And that, you know, if I'm going to disappoint people, then I want to disappoint them kind of on the same time frame as the Stone Roses, you know, <laughs> or I, I don't want to make people wait longer than the Stone Roses did before disappointing them. Maybe that's the, you know, I don't know. I, I just, I, I like having a kind of specific date. The first, the, the first book I kind of insisted on releasing it on a particular day because it was the, um, it was the anniversary that the band, um, you know, the band called the band yeah. did um, that they, it was the anniversary of the last waltz, which was their farewell concert. So I'm mm. also kind of released as a feature film by, um, directed by Martin Scorsese, I think. Right. But, um, I, I just wanted to release quit your band on the day, the band quit their, <laughs> on the 40th anniversary of the day, the band quit their band. Perfect. Um, I just, I thought that would be hilarious. And then nobody asked me about it. So nobody, <laughs> so I, I tell everybody in every interview I do now, it's like, Hey, that clever thing I did pay attention to that, please. Now laugh. I thank you for laughing. So you so you've got the next one, you got the next one planned out with your next clever. Story. I mean, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. Right, right. Um, yeah, I gotta, I gotta thank you. This, thank you for this, Ian. I feel like the times kind of flown by. I've got, I got two final questions that I ask every guest. If that's, if that's cool with you, go for it. Nice. So yeah, as this, as this is called the Inspirations Pod. Um, the questions, yeah, are related to that. So, um, who are, I guess, three things or three people that have inspired you either in your work, your, your writing, your work with the label, uh, or just in your life, three things or three people that have really inspired you. Let me think, um, I mean, I think I, I mean, I've, I've covered some of this already. I think like a, a big, like a big, a big inspiration, like I said, was the, um, the, the prayer nights at Moles Club in Bath when I was a teenager. That right. was, I, um, I don't know that, that just when I was starting the label and my events, that kind of gave me a, an image of what it could be. And I had a sort of model in my mind. I mean, I ended up doing something quite different, but because I'm deep working with different materials, but that's maybe one of them. Um, sort of cheesy to say it, but like the 
you know, all, all the people kind of around me because inspiration is a constant thing. It's not like there's a moment yeah. of uh, sort of like, ah, the light from Damascus, you know, it's inspiration is something that you constantly need. Um, like I think motivation and kind of persistence are things that need to be fed constantly. And so having people around me like, um, you know, like, like Shingo, like Matt, like Mayumi, like, um, like Ryotaro, um, like, you know, like my wife, that that's a absolutely like, absolutely crucial. Like, um, uh, people like my, my publisher, Matthew as well, like, you know, people who just like ask me to do things for them. Um, the people who kind of run the venues in the music scene here, who've like given me spaces to do things and who, kind of who seem to want me still you know all that kind of stuff um one more i don't know what kind of thing uh, okay um sort of off the <laughs> off the um a bit kind of left field suggestion is um the croatian tennis player goran ivanisevic mm-hmm. um he was the guy who, in the 90s, he he was in the finals of Wimbledon every year and he always lost. He always got beaten. And then finally he kind of, he got in as like a wild card because he was sort of, you know, a character and everyone loves him. And every, it's like career was basically over by that point. And just in that last year, he he nailed it, you know. And, right. sort of, uh, and he's the guy. He had a bad temper. He was, uh, but he was... You know, he had he tended to sort of fall apart in the middle of games. You'd think he'd be going there, but then his mind would just kind of crack and he'd go, you know. But he's he's a model of he was a model of persistence. And I think that also, you know, I, I think that kind of had a big effect on my kind of young mind <laughs> growing up. Great. It doesn't yeah. matter that he won in the end, you know. It, it, that it's it's nice that it ends with a kind of heroic victory, but it doesn't actually matter. That's not the bit that was sort of inspiring about him. That was just like a very happy payoff for it. Just kind just of showing up, right? Yeah, <laughs> just showing up. Showing up is it's incredible. It's the most useful thing anyone can do. <laughs> right, right, right. Consistently yeah. showing up. Hmm. Um, yeah, those were good. Uh, so last one for you. Um, <laughs> so for yourself personally, um, you know, if someone reading your articles or reads your book comes to one of your shows um and is kind of inspired by something you do inspired by you know inspired to action or inspired by something you've done what what does it mean for you to kind of be inspirational to other people um i mean obviously that feels great doesn't it um it's the the idea that that just that the fact that somebody's listening and the fact that somebody's paying attention and you know to see that kind of spin off into something else is is superb you know i i love that feeling um it makes it feel it makes it feel worth it when you can see that it's having an impact on other people um cuz like i said i'm not really getting anything sort of sort of material out of this for myself. So um, 
anything that's kind of making the culture better is a positive outcome. And yeah, just I guess sort of selfishly, it feels kind of it, it feels good to to have the power. <laughs> right. <laughs> power. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Perfect. So yeah, I gotta I gotta thank you for this. I gotta thank you for uh, for your writing, for your book, for your label, your DJ sets that I gotta check out. See, I know you're. I know you're. You don't need I know, to. You don't I know, need to. <laughs> I know you're putting on some more. Uh, I believe early next month. Um, and yeah. just like you say, just continuing on um, when maybe a lot of people would have quit. So I'm excited to see what you do next and I'm excited for the next book. So yeah, thanks once again. If people want to follow and keep up with you and call and response, where can where can we kind of uh, keep up with Ian Martin and call and response? I think if you if you just Google call and response records now, then it, it comes to us to one of our spaces i i know there's other things called call and response records out there but i think we've sort of we've driven them off the top page of google now over the years um well done like um i, I think twitch is the most sort of up-to-date place for any new information um but you know we've got our band camp which that's the place to go i guess if you want to hear the music because right uh, most of it's up there yeah, I gotta, I gotta thank you once again for doing this, and like I said, I'm looking forward to seeing what you're doing and call and response. So, yeah, cheers, all the best to you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So that was Ian Martin, and this is James Malian with ADSR Inspiration. Until next time, thanks for listening. If you want to hear more insightful and inspirational chats from people based in Japan and all over the world. Make sure to follow us at adsrcollective.com. We are on Instagram and Twitter at adsrcollective. Then listen to the pod on Spotify, Apple, Google, and more. Thanks again for taking the time to listen. Until next time, stay inspired.